Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. I'm delighted to invite Jessica Guadalupe Tovar today. She's an energy democracy organizer with a local clean energy alliance based in San Francisco Bay Area. She grew up in housing projects near an industrial pollution corridor in East Los Angeles. The experience of cancer in her family led her to focus on preventing and reducing local industrial pollution and to advocate for policies to protect vulnerable communities. Jessica has worked for almost 20 years as an environmental justice and climate organizer in a variety of urban, rural, and indigenous communities throughout California and Arizona. Jessica started with the Environmental Justice and Climate Change Initiative in 2003, working with organizations across the U.S. on issues of climate justice. Since then, she has battled various polluting corporations, PG&E and Bayview, Hunters Point. She currently promotes equity and clean energy as the coordinator of the East Bay Clean Power Alliance, which has advanced local clean energy solutions by establishing a community choice program, East Bay Community Energy, a public energy service provider agency that is now powering over 1.6 million people in Alameda County and the city of Tracy. The Local Clean Energy Alliance is jumpstarting a just transition with a local development business plan, a Green New Deal for Alameda County with net revenues from East Bay Community Energy. Since June 2019, EBCE has provided millions towards advancing clean energy programs and projects to bring clean power to the people. It was really engaging to talk with Jessica. She has a unique perspective as somebody who's lived with the consequences of our industrial energy production program and who has the vision for something different. It's really exciting and interesting, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. Jessica, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you. It's great to have you. I was really interested when I was looking around for somebody who could speak about community efforts to take more autonomy on their energy, and and you came up in your organization. So I'm super excited to hear from you. To begin, I'd love for you just to start by talking a little bit about the chasm or chasms you see as as they relate to the work you're doing. Sure. Yeah. So when I think about uh, chasms and in relation to our work, what immediately pops into mind is corporations, Um, and specifically utility corporations who I see as a hindrance in us really being able to really build out our communities with a decentralized energy system or rather local clean energy, um, which is what we're really emphasizing. is really having more community control energy system. And that requires having control at a local level. And a lot of what what we come across is we're really battling corporations who are really trying to maintain their monopoly and their control, their power, essentially. So that's what comes to mind immediately. So I'm wondering if you could just uh, give us a little bit of background. So I, you know, many everybody uses energy, of course, and they turn on their lights and they get an electric bill and so forth. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how energy is produced, who owns it, how it's distributed. Just give us a background on where our energy comes from generally. Sure. Well, majority of folks probably don't know where their electricity um, comes from. You know, switch the switch at home and the lights come on. Uh, very few people have an idea of where this electricity is coming from. And that's because the majority of our energy comes from remote sources that are owned and controlled by corporations. Um, And oftentimes it's dirty energy. It's in communities of color that are bearing the brunt 
of the production or the refining or the the burning of um, dirty energy. And so uh, that requires a system that A, is remote, so you might have an energy system or a power plant far away, or in California it could be in the Central Valley in the desert somewhere. And then it has to be brought in to the places where it's used through transmission wires, the transmission wire system, which is an infrastructure that's very costly. <laughs> and if you're in California, you might have heard of these uh, wildfires that we have, and a lot of them are caused by this transmission wire system that's poorly managed by a lot of these corporations. So you have energy that's being brought in from far away, and oftentimes it's dirty, it's transmitted into the places where it's used, and then, you know, you turn on the switch at home. And I, I think this is where the problem is. If it were in our communities and we were able to see it, we would ensure that it's clean, that it's not hurting anyone, and that it's, again, just clean, localized energy. And very few people have access to that. And so a lot of the work that I'm emphasizing is, well, how do we access local Clean Energy Alliance and produce it and benefit not just from the energy itself, from but from the wealth that comes from producing your energy um, and getting, you know, access to affordable clean energy. There's a lot at stake, um, and I think that by design, our energy system is designed so that we don't know what it is, we don't know where it's coming from, therefore we don't weigh in or question it. But we're at a point where, because of climate change and those impacts and the wildfires that I mentioned, we're questioning it, and we have in mind a better system that we want to advocate for. Yeah, that, that's helpful. I mean, one of the terms you just used is decentralized. So could you explain the difference between centralized and decentralized energy production? Sure, yeah. So I mentioned remote, remote sources of energy. That would be a centralized, they, use, they call that centralized um, energy model. And I would I would categorize it as centralized in terms of monopoly utility control owns and controls it, right? Whereas a decentralized energy system, you can imagine small clean energy projects throughout a city or throughout a community, even uh, producing energy at a local level. And if we can do this on a large scale, a lot of small producing clean energy. And it could be, for example, solar cooperatives, the microgrids. That is what a decentralized energy system could look like. And I feel like there's so many more models that we're yet to tap into that could make up this more localized clean energy system versus that centralized corporate utility scale model. And I want to get to some of those and some of your insights about that in just a moment. But one more clarifying question. I think some people might be curious or not clear on if, if it's owned by corporations, that's one thing. But how is it actually funded and who makes the decisions on rates, for example, and, and sort of the oversight of these private entities? Could you could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, one thing to, to highlight that we are constantly challenging is that, you know, corporate utility scale model means that the corporation is beholden to its investors, right? And as a result, 
you know, the, the energy or the electricity being sold to us, you know, our, our bills are always going up. They never go down. And these corporations are squeezing any way to make money or make profits, even if it means, you know, exploiting a community of color where the energy is being produced, even if it means, uh, you know, neglecting their transmission wire system and causing fires here and there, they're out to make money. And it is so, uh, so extreme that those incidences of wildfires that kill people and destroy communities or running a fossil fuel power plant that makes people, you know, have asthma and have poor quality of life um, and in that environmental health impacts, that is a system that needs to change because we can have clean energy and we can have access and not have to hurt people in the process. And I think that is what we're asking for is a new energy system that's more localized, that's healthier both for the climate in terms of uh, alleviating climate change, but at the same time working for people as opposed to uh, hurting people. One of the responses, especially from utilities, would say that the the scale of electricity that's needed requires a centralized system so that it's more economically efficient. It, it ensures that you know energy is always produced and it's always available. And there's not that many you know sort of examples of decentralized systems. So, how do you respond to that in 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 general? And what what are the specifics you point to that suggest that a decentralized system can actually supplant a, a centralized one? Sure. So one thing I, I like to emphasize is we already have a centralized energy system that's already in place and it's doing well. But what we don't have is enough of that localized, more decentralized uh, opportunities. And a lot of it is because these corporations, and I'll use PG&E as an example, want to make sure that we don't own any aspect of the energy system. They make it difficult, as a matter of fact. And and a good example is their, their blatant attack on like local solar policy, right? They want to kill the local solar industry because they see the writing on the wall. They know that a lot of us want to move in this direction and they want to kill their competition. They want to secure their monopoly. So that is a dynamic that we deal with on a regular basis when we're challenging this energy, the current energy system. And then the flip side to that is there are some models that do exist And how do we move forward to be able to expand a more localized energy system? And that's what we're trying to do. Um, But then that means we are battling these corporations like PG&E, for example, like Southern California Edison, like San Diego Gas and Electric, because they're putting their money into making sure that we don't have access to the very models that I've mentioned, like solar cooperatives, like microgrids, for example. If we do have access to something like that, they want their hand in it. They want to make sure that they're controlling it. They want you to be hooked up to the grid. 
and they want to benefit from the solar that you're producing. They don't want you to benefit from it. And that's why they're constantly trying to ratchet down or kill policies that incentivize solar production, um, for example, at a local level. So that's what we're dealing with. But I think, you know, you know, it's important for me to highlight, I come from a community that's been impacted by dirty fossil fuel energy production. And gosh, in, in my neighborhood, I, I, I seen the transmission wire infrastructure you know, break and cause fires. It happened. Um, and huge transformers just spark and, and catch fire. I mean, it's kind of, it's scary if you've ever seen anything like that firsthand. But growing up in a community like that, our health was compromised. We didn't reap the benefit of these multi-million and billion dollar infrastructure in our own backyard. And so what I'm saying now is we need to flip the script on energy so that it works for us in terms of doesn't, you know, cause adverse health effects. And in a decentralized system, we'd be able to create local clean energy jobs, which would advance communities that have not benefited financially from the energy system. Um, so the creation of jobs, both in the installation, the maintenance, but also, again, going back to local governance and ownership of this, of, of, uh, this localized energy system. And that is something that these corporations don't want us to have, but we're fighting for it. And, yeah, that's, that to me is, is very important if we want to make an energy system that is actually good clean and benefits us and is affordable, right? Because again, our bills always go up. They never go down. Ultimately, I, I would like to see us see energy as a human right. And in, I think that the pandemic itself really highlighted how important access to energy is, just as it is important to have access to clean water, to housing, the food, uh, you know, when we had to shelter in place in our home, if we didn't have access to electricity, we couldn't work. We wouldn't have access to our communication in the event of an emergency or the communications that we have to make, you know, with families to check in at a time where people were getting sick and we couldn't see each other in person because it could be a life or death situation. So I also want to highlight the message that, Energy is actually a human right. So you've made um, sort of a, an entry point here to think about energy slightly differently. But I think many people, because we've been embedded in the society where it's always centralized energy production, maybe have a hard time understanding what decentralized in a local place might look like. And you've already mentioned a couple terms like microgrids and community energy and so forth. Can you spend a little time really laying out what would it look like and how would it be organized if people and communities could, could produce their own energy? Yeah, thank you. So, yes. So, so I spoke a lot about the production of it, right? So it could be local solar. It could be local wind. It could be also storage, right? Uh, battery storage. But another thing that I want to emphasize when we're thinking about alternatives we're also thinking about how do we do this different so that not we're not repeating the same patterns of uh, 
you know, for example, lithium ion mining is a huge issue right now. And that is an environmental justice issue, right? So I've learned about, for example, hemp batteries that um, are kind of just very new, I would say, in terms of most people have not heard about this, um, but there is research around that. So being able to incorporate like newer models or new innovative technologies that might be better, for example, um, so using that for a possibility for uh, capture of storage of energy, be it from wind or solar. Other ideas would be changing our consumption habits, right? So uh, not consuming as much electricity um, and energy as, as we have before. But I think most importantly, changing the habits of corporations and businesses. How do we reduce consumption and so that we don't have to be, you know, wasteful when it comes to energy. How do we make our homes and businesses more uh, energy efficient, for example? How do we upgrade our buildings so that, you know, we're not having to run our air conditioning or heaters 24-7 so that this, you know, like if we're trying to keep a home heated, it's not escaping out the windows, for example. It's insulated enough to capture the heat and uh, keep the home warm or the school warm, for example, during uh, during the winter. So that would be the concept of ener energy efficiency. Another realm that I think is really taking off now is this concept of electrification and decarbonization of buildings. So for example, that could be, um, it's a way to address getting our homes and businesses, maybe even could be schools, other municipal kind of buildings off of using gas in the in the home or in the building. So for example, switching out appliances to be all electric instead of having like a gas heating system in the home, replacing it with electric, or instead of having the gas stove or water heater, switching that into electric. So there's that realm of work that's starting to take off. Again, there's a lot of jobs in energy efficiency and electrification. So those are some approaches, other approaches to address energy that could actually benefit in terms of creating more localized jobs as well. So it's not just the production, but then again, also how we use uh, energy in the home. And again, figure out ways to bring down that energy bill burden um, if you have a more efficient home, if you have, uh, you know, replaced appliances with electric, they're more efficient, and hopefully our bills are lowered um, as a result of that. So that's another another aspect to address the, the electricity um, energy issues. So it sounds like you're saying this will have to, have, have to happen simultaneously. There'll have to be some energy efficiency and demand reduction. At the same time, there has to be a replacement of the centralized energy production with localized energy production. So can you speak to that a little bit? How would we possibly create enough energy locally to meet demand, uh, even if it is reduced through some of the things you're talking about? And in that answer, if you could kind of talk about the different ways of doing that, including like the issues with the microgrid and so forth, how, how would we do that? So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about the wildfires in California and how a lot of them were caused by um, the centralized energy system, specifically the transmission wires. 
And so a lot of what we're, what we've been advocating for too is like, well, how do we, how do we plan to keep the power on in the event of a crisis, some kind of crisis or, um, because a lot of these corporate utilities have instituted power shutoff as a way to prevent future fires, even though I want to be clear, they do these power shutoffs and they still ignite fires. That's happened. So what we've advocated a lot for is microgrids, which is pretty much islandable solar with energy storage that could function in case there's some kind of a grid failure or some kind of power outage, be it by some kind of, could be an earthquake, it could be some something. I, 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 we're at a point where we know we have to be planning for crisis use because we're living in one right now. So having this decentralized microgrid that can function when there's a grid failure of some sort, keep the lights on. It could be a school, it could be a block, neighborhood block by block microgrid it could be a multi multi-family uh apartment building it could be uh, another example that i think is a good one too it could be like a food bank or some kind of crisis resilience hub um a place where people go to when they need medicines refrigerated breast milk refrigerated or um, they need access to refrigerated food to keep people, you know, fed in the middle of a crisis. You know, you, you, you think about at a food bank, maybe there's large refrigerators that need to be running, right? They could benefit from having a microgrid that makes sure that the power is on and the food and the medicine or the breast milk, whatever it is, is refrigerated, doesn't spoil um, and can be used and not rely on a grid that already has failed us. <laughs> just want to mention, you know, it's not just here in California, but like uh, I want to mention like the super freeze that happened in, in Texas, for example, a lot of people went without power during a really real free freeze. You know, we don't know what's next as a result of climate chaos. We don't know what's next, but we need to prepare and one of these ideas, solutions that we've come up with, is the idea of my of microgrid. So, so I guess uh, uh, the obvious next question is, um, if if I'm hearing you correctly, the microgrid is basically people creating local energy production that then goes into a smaller grid that's just a neighborhood or a few buildings and so forth. I, that seems pretty straightforward. I guess if the question is, if that uh, makes so much sense, why don't we have that already? What is really holding us up from being more prepared and having more autonomy with our energy? It really comes back down to, you know, these utility corporations. They don't, they don't want to see us go that direction. They want us to be dependent on them for electricity and for our energy needs. Um, and what we're saying is we, we not only don't want to be, we can't be. If, we, if our communities really want to plan for survival, because again, we don't know what, what curveball is going to hit us next, we want to have this kind of uh, infrastructure in place. And oftentimes what comes up is not only do these corporations not want to allow us to have islandable solar and battery storage, but if we do, then they want their hand in it. And when I say they want their hand in it, 
they make it complicated. Uh, if we say, for example, we want a whole community, a whole block to be on one meter, they don't want that. They want every home, every business to have a meter and they want to make sure they control, you know, what kind of, you know, how much you're consuming and charge you for it. And they make it, they make it very complicated for us to institute these, these ideas. Uh, so it is, I have to emphasize, it's been, it's an uphill battle, but it's not impossible. I will not say it's impossible because we were, we're breaking ground in terms of like, uh, people are now saying, yeah, this is exactly what we need in order to, you know, keep the lights on. Or for example, if, you know, a household or a building, you know, is, of taking care of elders or disabled people, they need to have power on to keep breathing machines on. That's a life and death situation, right? Or some people need to power their wheelchairs in order to get around. That, again, is something that, you know, it can't, it's not up for negotiation. We need people to have access to electricity in emergency situations. That's a great example where it's it is power that's needed for people to live and function. So I, I suspect that the sort of political and policy elements and realities vary quite differently across the country. But can you give us some just general insights into if people were really interested in having more community control, what would actually have to happen legally or policy wise for that to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, good question. So, you know, that really goes into, like, who are the de- decision makers, right? Because it's not just these corporations, but also um, the Public Utilities Commission, for example. Um, and we have a big problem with ours here in California. And I'm sure that's the same for other states. But they're a huge decider in a lot of these issues. Um, and so it really requires advocating both inside of the public utilities as well as outside and having, you know, uh, what we call this, we call this uh, energy democracy. It's really organizing, okay? It's really organizing the people, organizations, community-based groups, communities to understand the energy system and advocate for these alternatives. And so that is a lot of what my organization does is we really... um, demystify the energy system, come up with solutions and advocate for them. Um, and right now, the big one is microgrids to keep the power on in the face of some kind of crisis or on power shutoff. Because right now, pg e in the Bay Area is saying that they're going to be shutting off power abruptly for the next 10 years until they can fix their system their faulty transmission wire system that causes wildfires. And and it's a thing here now where everybody says, oh, it's wildfire season. Well, what they're referring to is the fires that are caused by the transmission wire system of the corporation. Yeah, it's just such a huge problem that we have to weigh in internally at the CPUC, California Public Utilities Commission, put pressure on our governor to do something. And right now, you know, it's 
funny how people call him the climate governor, yet as far as I'm concerned, the guy just grandstands. He hasn't really taken action. We have a huge emergency here in California. Wildfire season is killing people. The fire in paradise killed 85 people. The majority were seniors and some disabled people. Like we can't afford to have an energy system that sacrifices communities. And so that's why we're really pushing our decision makers to, to really allow for policies that enable these solutions to be reactualized in our community. Um, and we're, we advocate in different spaces. So I'll give you an example. Um, a lot of my work has focused on community choice energy in California, which is a policy that allows local cities and counties to take over the electrical portion of the bill. So I mentioned uh, PG&E, their Pacific Gas and Electric. Well, they've lost a lot of their electricity customers as a result of our advocating for community choice policies and programs within the state of California. These agencies do some good, and then they do some things that we're kind of like, we have to push them to do more of the good stuff at a local level, okay? This doesn't happen. It's not a given. All of these are fight organizing people, organizing community-based organizations, and putting pressure on the decision makers. So under Community Choice Energy, your local city and county representatives are the deciders when it comes to electricity. So there's a lot more um, access to pressuring the decision makers to do better around electricity needs. And so a lot of what we've been advocating for are more of these microgrids, some of which are in the process of being built, I would say. Um, but I still think there's a lot more that has to be done. Um, so I'll give you an example. Like in our local community choice program, State Community Energy, they, they have instituted some microgrids. And in our advocacy, some of their microgrids are actually done for the police and the fire station. And what we said is, no, we need trusted community locations for our microgrids, like the local schools, for example, or the hospitals, uh, the food bank, for example. You know, it's not just resilience for the police. If anything, we're emphasizing community has no... Um, trust in a lot of our local uh, local police. And so we have to ensure that we're doing this also in trusted spaces in our community. So there are some that are in the works right now. Um, but a lot of also what we've been advocating for is when they sell us electricity and they make money off of selling us electricity, that some of that money comes back to the community in the form of investment, such as microgrids, such as electrification such as energy efficiency upgrades. Just to emphasize, community choice is still pretty new. This local program that I'm referencing is State Community Energy started providing electricity and replaced pg and providing electricity back in 2018. Uh, so it's only been a couple of years, but they're making a lot of money. And so we're able to advocate for millions of dollars 
towards these investments. And that is something we could not do when it comes to being dependent on an investor on utility. That money that they make from selling this electricity when it comes to PG and Southern California Edison, that money goes to investors. It doesn't come back to the community. At least through community choice, we can advocate for some of that money to be reinvested back into the community. The, the funding issue is really important. So it sounds like you're advocating for a redistribution of some of those funds that go back to the utility. Independent of that, is there basically the, is the only option essentially having local city and county governments put the bill for this? Is that what you're advocating or are there different mechanisms to fund these projects? Yeah, there's, there is at a local level, we're using community choice. We advocate through the CPC on a statewide level. Uh, for more investments as well, uh, mostly around specific programs and projects. Um, but then you have uh, other state monies and then federal money. Um, we're really looking towards this commitment from the Biden administration called Justice 40, where the Biden administration is committing to investing 40% into building and funding such programs in communities that have been disinvested for too long. And so we're hoping that we can leverage some of that federal money to fund some of these microgrids as well, and specifically community-owned and run microgrids. Because again, through community choice, those are run and owned by the community choice program. We want to see it owned and run by the people in the community. And so that's still work <laughs> to be done. Um, so there are opportunities for money, but like I said, this is all new and emerging. So it's a lot of advocacy right now. It's a lot of prep for more advocacy. And I hope that we can leverage the federal state money to be able to implement these microgrids. Because like I said, these are, potential life-saving infrastructure when it comes to energy. So, yeah, it's very important. One example of where a city tried to do this was Boulder, Colorado. And that was a long, painful, very costly attempt for the city of Boulder to basically take control of their local energy production. In the end, that didn't work. And I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I'm just wondering if you can speak to some of the challenges Again, we, we you've made clear that corporations are part of this landscape, but how is it that cities are going to be able to wrestle control away from investor-owned corporations? Yeah. Uh, like I said, it's still, it's a battle. <laughs> it's a battle that we've, we've taken on. Um, and it's pretty much something that has to be done because at the end of the day, what's happening state by state, not just here in California, is that these these uh, investor-owned utilities are investing so much time, money, resources into getting local solar policies using um, that as an example, right? Uh, it's known as net energy metering, but what it is is solar, local solar uh, policies um, that when we produce our own solar, we should be able to, you know, get credit on our bills, and if we if if we're able to produce more solar than we use, we should be able to benefit by making money from that from from that extra solar that we we produce. 
And what the utilities are trying to do is completely gut net energy meeting that policy that would allow regular people to put solar on their roof and produce uh, extra clean energy for their neighbors. And what the utilities try to do uh, is they want to be able to take credit, and, you know, for the extra solar that you produce and make money off of it. But what they've been trying to do state by state is completely gut that policy to secure that they are in charge of the energy system, even if it is the new clean emerging emerging energy system. So that's where things could go awry, and we don't. We want to make sure that we have ownership and control. There is a transition already happening, but what it boils down to is who benefits. Who benefits from this new clean energy system? And we want to make sure that it's us this time around and not just these corporations. Corporations already made money off of us, already made us sick, already burned up our community. We're done with that <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, yeah, it's time for us to have, you know, own, own and govern that system. And it would look very different if we had that full power. So, yeah, we have to protect uh, existing policies and strengthen them because it shouldn't be that just because you're a homeowner that you can put solar on your roof. How do we institute, uh, you know, solar gardens or virtual net energy metering um, so that we can have, you know, um, local solar plants in our community that power the residents, the renters in the community, right? How do we make sure that these communities that have lived in the shadows of these gas-fired power plants for so long now benefit from these localized clean energy uh, infrastructure? We shouldn't have to be that, you know, we own our home, we have upfront capital, and we're able to go solar and everybody else doesn't have the opportunity to benefit. We're trying to change that. We're trying to make it so that it, it's accessible, so that there's equity. I call it clean power to the people, and that's what we're, we're fighting for, is clean power to the people. You're making a very compelling case that there is a lot of work to do and that there are very strong actors, powerful actors that are limiting progress. But I think implicitly you're also saying that it's not merely enough just to put solar panels on your home, which is a lot of the rhetoric we hear around addressing climate change. We just need more solar, but but that's not enough. And 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 why is it that we don't hear more about the need for community energy, do you think, even within those people and those entities that really care about dealing with climate change? I really do think that, the, that these corporations drown out our stories because you know, I'll tell you, as somebody who's working every day in this in this advocacy sector, we are networked. We are all over the United States, from Alaska to Puerto Rico. We have community groups that are advocating for local decentralized clean energy systems that can weather the storm. <laughs> These microgrids that we've been talking about, like that's exactly what people in Puerto Rico are advocating for. They were hit hard by hurricanes. Their entire energy system was destroyed. People went without electricity for months. In Puerto Rico, our allies there, they're advocating and fighting hard to, to have access in the way that I've described at a local level. Um, and then we have a government <laughs> that is 
trying to, you know, make way for corporations. And that's something that we're battling every day. And it's even worse for the people of Puerto Rico. So this is, this is an effort that's happening all across the United States. Um, and if you're not hearing about it, I, I really would say it's because these corporations don't want you to know that there is an entire movement moving in this direction. I'm just one of many voices. Is there any place listeners could go to find out more about that? I mean, your organization has a website, obviously, but is there any broader group that puts, sheds light on these efforts around the country? Yeah. So, and when I mentioned the network, uh, you should definitely check out energydemocracy.us or .us, energydemocracy.us. Um, there is so many community efforts and organizations that are fighting for a decentralized clean energy system, one that's not dependent on corporations for the resilience and the transformation in our community. So definitely check out energydemocracy.us. There's also a book called Energy Democracy. Um, It's called Energy Democracy, Advancing Clean Energy Solutions. Um, And it has stories from various communities community efforts um, and my organization local clean energy alliance is in there um, our coordinator is uh, co-editor of that book the other person is Denise Fairchild um, of Emerald City um, so there's a book to check out a website um, and certainly check out local clean energy dot uh, org which is my organization so you've you've painted a nice picture here of how we could think about energy democracy differently. Are there any examples, either in the U.S. or abroad, where we could point to to suggest that a different kind of energy system, production, locally owned and, and operated, is, is working and can work? Yeah, I think um, there are. There's some partner organizations that, that are actually running, um, you know, solar cooperatives, for example, in rural areas. And actually, it'd probably be great to, to interview them and feature them in a future episode because you might be able to get a lot more, in, you know, firsthand information on what that looks like on the ground from people who are making it, making it happen, right? So I definitely want to point you to some of those groups. You can talk to them about that. But yes, there are some small scale, uh, but like I said, we're trying to, expand our policies to allow this to happen on a wider scale so that it is normalized in our communities. And that's, again, where the fight is. We shouldn't, it shouldn't be limited to demonstration projects. This needs to be a way of life. And that's what we're fighting for. Your organization also talks about demand, which you mentioned earlier, and, and you talked about energy efficiency and so forth. But one of the other elements you all are working on is actually city planning and trying to organize, plan, and develop cities in different ways. Can you speak to how city planning is related to both demand management and overall you know, promoting local community energy? Sure. So really, when it comes to the city planning um, realm of things, again, as I've emphasized, we're not advocating for a new remote energy system. We're advocating for building this in our built environment, in our cities where we use the electricity, being able to solarize. If you think on a, 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 a imagine what our communities look like, right? We have homes, we have apartment buildings, we have schools, 
we have warehouses, we have city buildings. If we can solarize all those rooftops, we can produce a large amount of solar to be able to both power our communities with clean energy. And if we design it so that it can island in the event of some kind of unforeseen uh, crisis or an instituted, you know, uh, power shutoff, we can keep the power on in all these places. So, you know, thinking about it on that scale, it's important to include planning because we need to be able to look at all the rooftops in our community or think about where we're going to, you know, be able to put, I mentioned solar garden, you know, smaller scale, um, you know, uh, solar, be it, it could be a small plant in the middle of a community, or it could be, you know, maybe you've seen some of these uh, parking structures that have, you know, solar arrays that are used to also shade cars. And so you're producing solar and at the same time you're keeping your car cool kind of a thing while it's parked. Yeah, just other models and really integrating them in our built environment. And again, not relying on these remote sources of energy. And, and when I say we shouldn't rely on the remote sources, it's not only because they're remote, but oftentimes there are market mechanisms that allow dirty energy to be sold as if it were clean. When, you know, with these uh, market schemes of credit, we're renewable energy credits. There's three categories, and one of them, I think the third category, is actually dirty. Uh, you know, we don't, we know that these corporations are pulling the wool over our eyes. We have a different energy system in mind. And in order to do it and make sure that it's clean and it's done right, it has to be in our built environment, in the communities where we live, work, play and play. As you've mentioned, you've noted that many people are concerned about this. I think many people listening might not know what to do, though. It's They might, they might support community energy, but not maybe not clear on how to get involved or what to do. What what do you tell people or what would you tell listeners what they should be thinking about in terms of addressing these issues based on your concerns and the sort of um, possibilities that these local community energy projects provide? How can people get involved? What should they do to try to make them happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely would check out, you know, uh, the energydemocracy.us website. There might be a community group that's already doing something similar either in your community or near you, for example. Network, even if we're not in your community, let's connect, let's talk. Uh, that's how I've learned. I, I have no background in the energy system. My background has been being harmed by the energy system. And I ended up here as a result of wanting to change what energy looks like in my community and make it so that it's a solution rather than a harm. And so by connecting with other community groups who are doing this work or learning about it, there's a lot of efforts right now um, and accelerators that have taken off. I'll give you an example. There's one called the Justice 40 Accelerator. Because I mentioned that the Biden administration has committed to funding such projects in communities that have been harmed for so long and disinvested. And so there's efforts like that to prepare community groups on the ground to 
to understand, uh, um, you know, what these models could look like, where the funding is, the government funding, how to, how to go about applying for this funding. So it's, it's, it's a movement now. You just need to plug in. Um, and, you know, that's what I would say to somebody is looking to see if there's somebody already doing this in your community. You want to get started, connect with us. That's the only way that we're going to be able to advance this work is by learning from each other, networking, um, and then the work from there takes off. That's how it happened with me. (laughs) You're you're talking about this in a very interesting way. Most people think about energy in the context of climate change as kind of an environmental issue. But the way you're describing it, it sounds more like a social issue. How do you think about energy and community energy production in that context between an environmental and a social issue? Mm-hmm. It is. It's definitely uh, a social issue. It's a, uh, there, you know, it has to be seen as very intersectional, right? Like I mentioned, it should be a human right. It certainly was highlighted for us throughout this pandemic and specifically the shutdown that it is a human right. And so, you know, I can't see it any other way. It's not only to address climate, but, you know, if we're not addressing the people who have been dumped on for so long, who have who have not benefited from the wealth of the energy system, uh, you know, we have to be able to look at it in that way and address those problems at a local level if we really want to make huge climate impact. So it is a climate justice issue. It's just that we're getting to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem really is local communities, oftentimes communities of color, black indigenous, people of color, lowest income communities who have been dumped on for very long, who have not benefited from the energy system, who have not benefited from anything, really. Core housing, core health, you know, I can go on and on, but all of these are related. They're not, they're not siloed. They're all intertwined. I grew up in an environmental injustice community and environmental, environmental racism is really the term, right? Where we were all poor people in housing projects that didn't by coincidence be built by a giant uh, industrial city. That was Go, talk about planning, that was planned. Um, and there was five gas-fired power plants. Again, uh, transmission wires, transformers, uh, crematorium, a slaughterhouse. This is metropolitan East Los Angeles, okay? This is probably not the one you've heard of. Um, and then, you know, the crime, the, the joblessness, I mean... Severe poverty. There were times where our power was shut off because my mom couldn't pay the bill. Imagine living by five gas-fired power plants and that myriad of transmission wires. Your mom can't pay the bill, and guess what? These corporations turn your lights off. Damn. That's crazy. Yet I'm living in the thick of the production of it. I have memories of not having hot water, really sad story. You know, my mom had breast cancer. Fortunately, she was a survivor. My grandmother eventually died of breast cancer. 
And that story is like so familiar in people that I grew up with. And it's not a coincidence. It was, it was planned that way. And we need to change that. I really appreciate you sharing that story. It's, it's um, powerful and, and helps us understand your, your insights and experiences. Thank you. I want to just end with three questions that are a bit more personal. And the first one is, what do you see in society that gives you inspiration and a positive outlook? It could be in the work you're doing or beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, again, going back to, you know, uh, first of all, I, I enjoy the work that I do. Thankfully, it's hard work. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) It can be taxing emotionally as well. But the fact that there is a whole movement and so many amazing, like, activists and organizations that are fighting for this, um, that gives me hope. And I work with a lot of youth as well. We're advocating for their energy system. We're advocating for a new economy one that's regenerative, one that's not hurtful. And the youth run with this stuff. They are fighting right there with us. And that's really what keeps me going. What are some examples of something you've read recently, heard, or seen that really challenged your views or made you think more deeply about your views around the work you're doing or society more broadly? Yeah, um, going again back to the youth, I, I want to say our organization's an ally with, like, for example, Youth Versus the Apocalypse. I was invited recently to just be a, an adult <laughs> chaperone with a bunch of youth, teenagers, and some who weren't even teens yet. They were, like, still uh, junior high age kids who were sitting outside of a, a legislator's office waiting for him because he refused to meet with them. Um, because he was a sway vote on a major issue that had to do with divesting from fossil fuels. And, you know, like I said, the kids, the youth are, are running their own campaigns and just being able to see them in action, advocate to adults about issues that they can't even vote on yet. They're not even on voting, but yet they're deeply invested and deeply um, knowledgeable about. To me, that is very, uh, talk about inspirational, <laughs> you know? I just had to be there because I they needed an adult, you know? Um, they were running the whole thing. And yeah, that, that experience in itself gave me so much hope and inspiration to keep going. Like, I don't, I, I, you know, if that isn't it, I don't know what it is because I'm telling you, when you see the kids in action, they're great. They're great. They were sitting at this guy's office waiting for him. And then they had a network of kids up in Sacramento waiting for him. And they actually caught the guy uh, and got in his face about making a, a, a vote that had to do with, you know, divesting from fossil fuels. That's very powerful. And these are kids or not even 18 yet. Amazing. And then lastly, this can all be somewhat overwhelming and lead to negative perceptions and so forth. What do you do to give you a sense of peace and joy amidst all of this? Oh, that's a great question. Peace and joy. <laughs> you know, um, what I've learned for me is just really balanced. 
being able to do this work, work hard and play hard. It sounds cliche, but it's real. You know, I just spent the weekend with my family uh, at a beach. That That is rejuvenating. With my five-year-old nephew, who's hilarious, that is, that is what I have to do. <laughs> Focus on and pull myself out of the work sometimes and take some time off and do other things. I'll give you another example. Uh, one woman I work with, she was like, yeah, just that you work so hard on this campaign and it's crazy stuff that you're dealing with. She was like, you know, you said you wanted to learn how to play the ukulele and I'm going to teach you. And she has been. We've been <laughs> in the middle of my work day. We have these ukulele jam sessions here. I'm learning to play an instrument that I've always wanted to learn how to play, but never had the time to take up. Well, she comes to the office and we do this together. Little things like that are so important in, in when you're, doing this kind of work. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated this conversation. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jessica. She has a unique perspective and so much experience. I especially appreciated the way in which she thought about the difference between just putting up solar panels and actually having community control. I think not enough people have heard about that in her persuasive argument is quite compelling, and I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I want to thank the executive producers of Crossing the Chasm, Dan Phillips, Cody Bayless, and Chris Flores, and of course, thanks to Anodyne Diversion for the music. And all to all of you, thanks again so much for listening. I really appreciate it. (laughs) 